Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Would you open your Bibles? We're going to John chapter 4. To walk with the Lord, we have to be able to respond to what he does. It is not a formula. You can't have a little set of rules and sort of a little process and you just sort of walk through woodenly. We have to walk in relationship with the living God. And that's what we're going to watch our Lord Jesus do today. We're going back to Jacob's well. We're going to watch him teach his disciples. We're going to virtually stand there with them by the well and let him disciple us on how to be interruptible. You ready for this? Holy Spirit, open our ears, open our eyes. We We would walk with Jesus Christ as true disciples. We would walk in the Spirit. Lord, we would hear you and follow you and be responsive to you. Come now, train us, equip us. Thank you for surprises. Lord, we, are, we will boldly approach the year, not run from it. We will embrace it because you're with us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, I'm, I'm in John chapter 4. Let me, let me set this up and remind you. It's been a while, so you might not remember. The first four chapters, most of it, of, of the Gospel of John, is, describes the first year of Jesus' ministry. He is providing information the other Gospels don't. Matthew, Mark, and Luke pick up Jesus' ministry when he returns to Galilee. They will pick up where we're, we're right now following Jesus up through Samaria, and then he will return to Galilee. That's when the other Gospels start. They don't describe this first year. You are learning something. When, you, when we go through this, we're seeing the first year. He has, if you recall, he has gone down to Jerusalem for the first time. John tells us he'll be there at least four times. The other Gospels only describe one. He he, he is there for the first time, and he's got six disciples. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, and Nathaniel. Doesn't have 12. He's got six at this point. He's down there. He goes into the temple, and do you recall what he found when when he went to the temple on the Passover? He found that huge platform area, 36 acres of, 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 of flat stone. It's, much of it's still there today when we, when we go to Israel. Uh, and 36 acres. And what was on that? Oxen, sheep, and baskets of doves. And then people with tables turning the money that, you will get, that you'd had from wherever you came in the world into money that was acceptable to be given to God. So you got money changers, you've got all of these things. Josephus says, the historian, there could be 3,000 sheep on that, on, on that platform at a time. How's that? It's like a farm. It's like going to the fair. You can imagine the odor, you can imagine the sounds. I mean, this is a mess. He walks in and wasn't pleased. You recall what he did? He took a, a cord of ropes, and he didn't hit people, but he began to, to drive the animals. And you can imagine a stampede of sheep. That's an awesome thought. Uh, you know, man, man, you know, and they're jumping over everything and knocking stuff down. They, 
And so he's, he's driving the, the sheep and the oxen. Now, those are issues. Uh, when you begin to hit an oxen, that's a, that's a different matter. And uh, I don't know which direction he drove them. Uh, he, told, uh, he came up to the people with the doves. He didn't hit the doves. He, and he, he said, get those things out of here. Don't make my father's house a marketplace. Remember this? Uh, and then kicks over, <laughs> kicks over the tables with the money changers. It's all splashing on the, on the stone floor. He made it quite a scene. From that moment on, the religious leaders wanted to kill him. He, he starts out on the wrong foot. I mean, from the, from, from the very beginning, he is someone they're trying to figure out, how do we kill this guy? That was the solution back in those days. Still is in the Middle East. Something wrong with you, bang. You know, it just, and so how do we kill him? That was their solution, and that's what they wanted to do with him. He went from Jerusalem out into the area around Jerusalem for about eight months. It's called Judea. He ministered in the towns and villages around Jerusalem and in Judea for about eight months. Then he gets word that the religious leaders know where he is, what he's doing, and how effective he is. That he has more disciples than John the Baptist, which is alarming to them. He, John the Baptist at this point is going to be arrested, and, and uh, he will then be beheaded, as you know, by, by Herod. Jesus hears this word, and it's not time for him to be arrested. He knows they're going to come for him. That's what, that's what the, the word was. They're going to come. They know where you are. They know what you're doing. It isn't time for him to, to be arrested. He's no coward. Boy, if anybody in history has proven, proven he's no coward, it is our Lord. But he was not time to be arrested. He had way too many people to, 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 to preach to, to heal, and discipleship that his disciples needed. So it wasn't time. So he heads straight north through Samaria. Usually the route was over to Perea, go north, and then turn back. He didn't do that. He went straight through Samaria. And on the way, as they're walking, he came to Jacob's well. Jacob's well's still there. Mary and I had the opportunity to see it in 1970. Uh, and it's over 100 feet deep. And I, I told you we got to drop a rock in it, and you, you just waited forever and heard it plink. I suppose if people keep doing that, it won't be 100 feet deep. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but it was then. That, that well is still there. He came, and he's been walking about six or seven hours, probably. It, it seems that he's either there at noon or he's there first thing in the morning, depending on which time scheme that John uses when he tells us what time he's there. But he arrives, and he sits down by the well. He's exhausted. He's just exhausted and hungry. And the disciples go on into this town, this village called Sychar, and they're buying food. And while they're gone, a woman comes. She comes up and she's got a, her water pot and the Lord looks up and sees her and, and somehow realizes this is a divine appointment. I need to talk to this woman. I'll show you in a minute. He would not normally talk to a woman, particularly uh, in this kind of situation. So he, he, he says to her, would you give me a drink? She says, uh, she says to him, why would you, a Jew, ask me for a drink of water? You Jews don't like drinking from our nasty little uh, uh, <laughs> water pots. I mean, we Samaritans are, Samaritans are unclean. I'm just sure there's a little bit of friction there. There would be. You know, the Jews felt we can't even shake your hand, you know, in some ways. And so it was pretty offensive. So she says, why would you want to drink from me, a little old Samaritan woman? And uh, he says, if you knew who it was you were talking to and the promises of Scripture... You'd ask him for a drink, and he would give you eternal water. 
He'd give you a water that rises up like a well inside you, and you'd never be thirsty again. She says, give me this water. He says, go get your husband. We're not going to carry this conversation on anymore without your husband. Go get your husband. She says, I don't have one. He says, oh, good answer. You don't have one. You've had five. And the man you're living with now, you're not married to. She says, ah, I perceive you're a prophet. Uh, and then she, I, I don't think it's diversion. I don't think she's just playing a game with him. She, I think she realizes, okay, this man knows God. So I'm going to ask the question. It's in my heart. She says, you Jews say we should worship down in Jerusalem. But our fathers, our Samaritan fathers, say we should worship here at Mount Gerizim. Which one's right? And the Lord says, the day's coming now. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The day is coming when you will neither worship in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But people who will be full of the spirit will worship him wherever they go. Amen? Hallelujah. That's a, that's a good season. That's the season we're in right now. The Lord has brought us into that. We're no longer tied to those kinds of things. And then this happens. Here we go. We're chapter, tw- uh, chapter 4. We're picking up at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. John adds that. Notice he's writing to a, an audience that speaks Greek, not, not, it, not Hebrew. So they wouldn't necessarily know Mashiach. And so he says, Christ, because so they'll know what he's talking about. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, now it says men here, and you think, aha, she's got, a, she's got all these husbands and she just talked to the men. That's not true. The, the word anthropos, which is what's used right there, is, is a Greek word meaning people, humankind. It also does mean man, but there's another word when you mean man or husband. That's not the word used. Just she talked to people. She went into the town and she said to the people, come and see a man who, who told me, all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. And Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. Would you say that? I have food that you do not know about. Do it again. I have food that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish, to finish, bring to completion his work. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white for harvest. Jesus saw the moment. They had stepped into a divine appointment. Would you say that term, divine appointment? Yeah, I don't know where I heard that. I didn't make that up. That's been around for a long time. But it's a great description, a divine appointment. In other words, something that God has planned and you walk into accidentally. You don't know what's there, but God has arranged for it. The people there were ready to hear the gospel. This woman was ready. The city of Sychar was ready. But he was exhausted and in a hurry. 
and he had only stopped to rest and get something to eat, what would he do? Would he explain the condition they were in and politely postpone, promising to come back at a more convenient time? After all, he still hadn't eaten anything, and he and his disciples had been walking for hours, possibly through the night. When we read such passages, you and I need to remember that Jesus was as human as we are. The Son of God came from heaven to become a man with a body like ours. So he was as hungry and tired as you and I would be in that situation. You realize why I'm reminding you of that. So often you can put Jesus on a pedestal. You think, well, he's, he's God. He's become a man. So he's kind, of, he's kind of a robot or something. Or he's kind of a, you know, what are you, you know, supernatural powers. And, and so he's not really hungry. He felt just like you would feel if you'd walked for the last seven hours or so, uh, either through the night or in the heat of the morning and you were hungry, you were tired, he probably sat down by that well, took his prayer shawl, put it over his head, and was about to go to sleep is what was going to happen. He was going to take a nap while they went to town to get lunch. And, he, and this woman comes out, and he looks up, and he senses the leading of God. She's an assignment. God's at work with this woman, and he engages her in a conversation. He felt just like you and I would. He felt the way we would feel if we'd gone without food and walked until we had to stop. Yet Jesus saw something in that moment that his disciples didn't see. He saw what God was doing in that place and realized that this, that meeting this woman wasn't an accident. So his love for people and his desire to give them eternal life caused him to set aside his own needs and trust that the Holy Spirit would sustain him until he could finally eat and rest. The disciples were standing there offering him food, but he didn't touch it. Instead, he began to prepare himself spiritually while a stream of people poured out of the city, rushing toward Jacob's well. He's making a choice in this moment. He's hungry. He's tired. The woman has gone to town to, to get to talk to people. She's left her, her, her water pot, meaning she's coming back. She's just rushing into town to, to tell people what She's just found at this well. And he knows that. They're coming back. And instead of eating, notice what he does. Instead of eating, he prepares himself spiritually. That's the food he's talking about. That's what he's doing. He's, he's either worshiping, he's praying, he's getting himself strong in the spirit. That is a priority over eating at that moment. You see this? So he's, that's just what he's doing. Now, let's go back and, and let me retell you the story. The disciples returned with food while this conversation was taking place. And John notes that they were so amazed to find Jesus talking to a woman alone that they stood and stared. That's the Greek word, thaumazo. It means, you know, you look at it, you're gaping. Uh, it's that kind of thing. They did not expect this. They, they, they're looking and staring. A pious rabbi would not converse with a single woman at all nor even a married woman without her husband being present. And the disciples' response gives us a glimpse of the manner in which Jesus conducted himself around women. Obviously, his normal custom was to maintain a proper social distance from women, though in a public setting we know he would minister to women as well as men. In this encounter, however, he had actually initiated the conversation because he felt the Father leading him to do so. This particular woman would become a key to evangelizing many Samaritans. 
But the disciples' response tells us that under normal circumstances, Jesus would never have spoken to a single woman. He was careful to protect his reputation and avoid temptation. That's worth seeing, isn't it? You you think, how did he conduct himself? Who was this man? He was very proper, very careful. He guarded his reputation. He was very circumspect in situations. So when, when they show up with, you know, here they are holding onto some kind of pita bread and hummus at, at, for lunch, and, and they look at him, and, and he's talking to her, and they're just staring at the situation like, what on earth is going on? Why are you talking to her? Though they hadn't been present long enough to overhear the serious spiritual conversation which had taken place between Jesus and this woman, the disciples were able to recognize that he was ministering, so they remained silent. They resisted the impulse to challenge the woman for her brashness by asking her, what do you want? Or blurt out their worry to Jesus by asking him, why are you talking with her? They simply stood there staring, and in that awkward moment, the woman left her water pot. You can see why she might, like, okay, I'm going to town. Uh, Because she planned to return soon and hurried back to the city to alert the population that the Messiah himself might be standing out by Jacob's well. She said to everyone, come see a man who told me all things which I did. That's literally what she said. In other words, I just talked to someone who accurately discerned the sins hidden in my past. She, then she exclaimed, and this is, what it, this is the way I translate it, this is what I think it says, is not this the Christ she had informed Jesus that the, the Samaritans believed that the Messiah would declare all things to us. Remember that? We know when he comes, he will declare all things to us. Meaning that he would not only accurately teach them the truth about God, but would also possess supernatural knowledge. Look, this is, in, this is basic to the Messiah. If you read, I give you the scripture reference there. It's Isaiah 11. Wonderful passage. It says, the spirit of the Lord, you know, a shoot will come from Jesse, and the spirit of the Lord will come upon him. And then it describes what the book of Revelations talks as the seven spirits. Remember this? And it's, it's the spirit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Remember all that? It goes down seven different things and, and, and all of it, along with the spirit of the Lord. And then it says this wonderful thing. It says, and he will not judge by what his eyes see or his ears hear. In other words, the Messiah, when he comes and he begins to evaluate our lives, and when, begins, when, we, when we seek wisdom from him, when we come to him, he will not use natural means. He will know the truth. It won't be a matter what he said, she said. He will know the truth. He won't need to look at it with his eyes. He won't need to hear with his ears. The Spirit will tell him what's true. Aren't you glad that's Jesus? That's the way he deals with all of us. He, he, he knows that truth. He would know things that a normal human being can't know. And in her case, Jesus had, had described specific details about her past history of someone he'd never met before. The, the positive response by the people in the city to this woman's testimony is significant. It tells us something about her and them. First, it tells us that she was considered to be a credible witness. Through her, pardon me, though her married life may have been troubled, her testimony about Jesus' prophetic powers was widely received. 
Look, most of the, when I read other commentaries and I look at what people are saying, they always talk about this woman as though she's some sort of tramp. You know, I, I think we enjoy just beating up on this poor woman. Yes, she's had five husbands. It is possible, may I suggest, that you can meet five duds. But, put that aside. I'm not saying she, she knows how to have a, a, a healthy marriage, okay. But that does not make her a fool. Nor does it make her a chronic liar. Yes, she tried to, to snow Jesus when she said, I don't have a husband, and he then handled that one. But come on, you, gotta, you, know, who, you can't blame her. Uh, but she goes into town and says, this man just told me things no man can know about my life. And notice the response of the city. They believe her. This woman has more solidity and more credibility than we're giving her credit for. I think it's what Jesus saw. When he probably had that prayer shawl over his head, he's probably sleeping there. He looks up, he looks up you know, sees her and goes, okay, a person of substance. Broken, wounded, but a person who's pursuing God. He saw that. So, and so does this, and the city knows that too. I just want you to see, uh, they would not have responded had she been a different kind of person. Many of them, must have held in their hearts a genuine expectation that the Messiah would come, many of the people in the city. And that attitude requires a genuine faith in God and an awareness of the promises contained in the Bible. In other words, these Samaritans were spiritually hungry, which is why large numbers of them left whatever they were doing and rushed out to Jacob's well. Would you do that? Would you drop your work, your whatever you're doing? And go, I got to go see and head straight on out of town and go look at Jacob's well to meet this man. After the woman left and before the crowd of people arrived, the disciples repeatedly asked Jesus to eat some of the food they'd purchased, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he refused, explaining to them, I have food to eat which you do not know. Clearly, he was referring to a source of spiritual strength upon which he was already drawing to prepare himself to minister to the crowd that would soon arrive. Yet their response shows that they still had no understanding of what it means to prepare oneself to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. I won't stop there, but do you see what we just said? They didn't understand what it means to prepare yourself to minister in the power of the Spirit. Do you? I'm going to tell you an awful lot of pastors don't. It's like they're just blank slates. They don't get this. This, this is a real process where you, 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 the way we worship here, you'll notice you, you're pushed to praise God even when you don't feel like it. You, you start out by saying things, you know, like you're, you're, you come in and you're just glad to be here or, or, or sad to be here, whichever condition, but you're here. <laughs> And, it's, and here we go. And then you're suddenly going, you know, I love you, Lord, and praise you, Lord. And you're saying things that you may not feel at the moment. But you believe. But you'll notice that as you press in, as you finally go, okay, I'm in. Do you notice how you change? You wake up spiritually. Suddenly God can begin to talk to you. You become alert. You're different, aren't you? That is preparing you in the spirit. You can sense the change. Our Lord knew this. In fact, I, don't, I was thinking about it during worship just now. 
Who else knew this? He virtually introduced this process. I mean, there were, uh, you see Elijah, you see people who, who got it. But the Lord basically came and taught us how to get in the Spirit. So his, his disciples are standing with food going, eat, you're tired, you're hungry, what's the matter with you? And he's saying, no, I got to prepare myself spiritually. Look, we have a ministry ahead of us. I've got to get into the Spirit and be strong. They took his statement about having food to eat, literally, and said to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did they? In other words, the only explanation they could think of was that he'd been given something to eat while they were gone. So Jesus explained, my food is that I may do the will of the one having sent me and may finish, this is what he says, may finish, complete his work. It's one thing to do a little bit of ministry. It's another thing to finish the work he's given you. It's one thing to win one person. It's another thing to win all of the people who are there. He says, we have a job ahead of us. There's going to be a lot of people coming. We're going to need the spirit. And I'm not going to simply win one woman. We're going to win the whole town. See that? My food is to finish the job. Say, finish the job. Now, he's giving you an assignment. It's not a dabbling thing. Not a little, I, a little, I'll do a little bit of it. Are you and I committed to finish the job? To stay at it till he says you're done. In that moment, Jesus was modeling for his disciples the importance of preparing oneself to minister. Of course he was tired and hungry, and, but he recognized that they had suddenly stepped into a ministry opportunity which had been planned for them by the Father. He understood that this encounter was not an accident and that it should not be thought of as an interruption to their busy day. They had unknowingly entered a field which God had prepared for harvest. This woman and many in the city were ready to hear the truth about Jesus and believe. So though he was in a hurry and had only stopped to rest and get something to eat, he saw what the father was doing and immediately chose to put his own needs aside and use the few minutes they had before the crowd arrived to prepare himself spiritually rather than eat food to strengthen himself physically. Jesus knew how to draw on the power of the Holy Spirit. He knew that through worship and prayer, the Spirit could lift him out of his hunger and fatigue and refresh him so that he could minister effectively. After all, within the past year, he had gone in the power of the Spirit without food for 40 days. Remember this? Within the year, he's gone 40 days in the Spirit without food. What? Seven hours. Jesus' response to that situation by Jacob's well beautifully illustrates how he functioned. He constantly watched for the Father's leading. He was willing to give the effort necessary so that he would not lose even one soul that the father had prepared for him. He knew the father had planned for him, had, had a plan for him, and he was determined to fulfill all of it. And finally, he understood the role of prayer and fasting as a means of preparing himself to minister. I think I first really began to discover what, what we're talking about right now. When I became a youth minister, it was... Mary and I have been ministering somewhere every week um, since January of 1972. That's a long time. So I know what I'm talking about. 
When I, as a youth minister, I started out at a little Presbyterian church in, in Pasadena, and uh, mostly old people. And, I mean, it was. It was right next to the retirement home for the Presbyterian ministers. Great people. I mean, wonderful people, but old. And uh, so when they said be the youth minister, it's like there were, I think there was two kids that were stuck there. And uh, I, I was their youth minister. I remember the first thing they said, well, what, you know, one kid has a swimming pool. Why don't you have a pool party? Well, I was just as, I was just as, as difficult to deal with as then as I am now. Actually, maybe worse. And I thought, pool, pool party, my foot. Now I'm going to get saved, you know. And, uh, and I did, one of them. Other one left. Uh, now it's hard to call it a group, you know. But the Lord began to just bring kids, and they'd get saved, and we'd get them baptized in the Holy Spirit. I remember one, one young man, he had just held up a 7-Eleven with a pistol. Uh, I didn't turn him in. I just prayed for him. And, and anyway, uh, he's sitting there in the chair, and we, we prayed for him and, and uh, got him baptized in the Holy Spirit. I remember the power hitting him, and the kid went down like a, like a sack of potatoes. He just, just went in the, in the chair. It was really wonderful, and never held up another 7-Eleven, to my knowledge. <laughs> I know he hasn't. He's, he's to this day a Christian. Um, uh, but when I would, in, in those days, and it's been, it's been to some degree, I don't know if this is helpful, uh, some degree ever since, I would often, we, Mary and I were living in a little rented house uh, there in, behind a, the, in Pasadena, there's a bunch of those little kind of mother-in-law houses. behind. We're in a little house behind another house. And I get in my car, and I have, I'm going for Sunday nights when we would meet. And um, I'd get in my car, and I'd, and I'd I have my, my Bible and my, my guitar. And I thought, oh, boy, here we go. And, I th- and I'd feel overwhelmed. I'd feel weak and dumb. I'd feel terribly inadequate and, and frightened. And I'd, I'd stick my head in the steering wheel, and I'd go, oh, God, don't make me go. Don't make me go. They don't like me. I don't like them. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't make me go. I, I didn't say that much, but I felt it. And, and I thought, and then I'd say, but Lord, you love them. And so I'm not worthy of having you minister through me. But for their sake, would you show up? Would you come? And I'd start my car and I'd drive over. And then I'd, I'd come. I remember we were in, a, we were in a, a building that was off of the main church. It was the fireside room and offices and things. And I'd come around the corner, and there'd be this, this big window there. And, and I'd peek around the corner to see if anyone had showed up. And then to my horror, they had. And I was like, oh, no, you're here, you know. And I'd come in, hi. Um, and I'd lead them in worship, and I'd, and I'd, 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 I'd teach the word. And you know what would happen? God would show I mean, we, we would be there often with that group. I don't recommend this, but we would be there till like midnight, you know, and everybody's, and they're, they're not messing around. They're talking about the Lord and praying for kids and stuff's going on. It just, it was just wonderful. And then next week, my head's in the steering wheel going, oh God, don't make me go. Oh no. And then I'd start the car and I'd show up and I'd hear, oh, you're here again. And, and he would show up. I want you to know something that in some measure, that anxiety, that kind of stress, the pressure on, on ministry has not left. I still feel that. I don't think you don't like me and I don't like you. <laughs> but, but I'm going to tell you, I had a young man just a few weeks ago. 
come up to me and say, I feel called to ministry. Would you pray because I have anxiety and, 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 and uh, uh, about speaking publicly? Would you pray that off me? I said, son, if I had that prayer, I would have prayed it long ago. <laughs> uh, I, I said, uh, buck up. As far, as far as I know, it doesn't go away. But I will tell you this. I'll tell you this from 40 years of, of experience. If you will press, if you will cross over that bridge of fear, if you'll show up, if you'll step in and just hang on to Jesus, he will not leave you. He will show up over and over again. You hear me? This is really important because I think this bridge of fear, this bridge of inadequacy, this sense of evaluating yourself is what holds so many people back. We're afraid. I, I, I don't feel anything. It's not you. If you ask yourself, are you qualified? I can help you with that. No, you're not. None of us are. Who's qualified to speak the word of the Lord? Who's qualified to bring the Holy Spirit of God and, and, and minister to people? Who's qualified? Only children of God through his grace. We are vessels. He's the, 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 he's the source. We bring him. And when he comes, everything changes. Everything changes changes. Jesus is modeling this for us. He's tired. He's hungry. He could so easily say, we've got to be moving. We've got places to go. And yet he's walked into a divine appointment. Here's a, here's a need. Here's an opportunity. So what does he do? He doesn't eat. He says, no, I got to worship. I got to pray. I got to strengthen myself because God's got to work here. I can sense it. You and I need to, where are we going with this? This is 2016. He wants us to function like him. He's our model. Will you and I be interruptible? Jacob's well. Then Jesus explained to his disciples what he was seeing in the spirit. He told them that they needed to recognize that they were standing in a ripe harvest field of souls. He told them to open their spiritual eyes and look around at the responsiveness of the people and recognize that the Holy Spirit was already powerfully at work. To illustrate his point, Jesus pictured that place as a field of grain. In that region, the barley harvest began in mid-April and the wheat harvest about a month later. Judging from his caution to them that they not say that it is four months until the harvest arrives... They were probably passing through Samaria about mid-December or possibly mid-January. Though farmers in the area would have to wait another four months for the seed that they had planted to ripen and be ready for harvest. The people who lived there were like ripe grain ready to be evangelized now. Yet the disciples hadn't noticed this. They were simply focused on getting through the area as fast as they could. So Jesus told them, lift up your eyes. And behold, meaning, and the word there means look carefully and think about what you see. That the fields are already white unto harvest. It's very likely that by the time he spoke these words, crowds of people had come out from the city gates and were walking towards them. In a place where there was no reason to expect such responsiveness. Large numbers had just listened to a woman's testimony, dropped whatever they were doing, and were hurrying out to meet him. Thankfully, Jesus was interruptible. People open up spiritually and need us to talk to them, listen to them, or pray for them 
at the most inconvenient, even awkward moments. Can you say amen to that? So often we might think to ourselves, why now? Why didn't this come up earlier? Or can't we postpone this until a better time arrives? I think all parents discover this dilemma as they raise children. There are moments when the child suddenly wants to talk and those opportunities arrive on their schedule, not the parent's schedule. And when they come, they are usually caught off guard and feel unprepared. In that unplanned moment, we are forced to make a decision. Will I set aside my own needs? Will I ignore the other voices that are demanding my time right now? Will I step out and trust that God will give me the ability to listen carefully and have the right words to speak when I need them? Or will I see this as an intrusion, an interruption, one more demand on my time and energy that are already in short supply? You know, they have books on on things like uh, quality time. Let me tell you something about children if you don't already, and I know you already know it. Quality time comes when they think it does. And it's the most illogical moments, usually, often. The way you get quality time with a child is by having enough quantity of time that you happen to be there when it sparks. Do you follow this? I, I, it's just amazing. You know, you're, 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 you're in some situation, and, and, and I remember one of my children turning to me, going, Daddy, will I die? Get back to you on that, you know. Yes, honey, you will, and then and, and now, now we need to. Why? The heart's open now. Either you move when that opportunity's there or you don't. Their heart is open. You're either going to respond or you're not. They decide this. Children show us this, and every disciple of Jesus Christ has learned that people are like that too. We have, he's teaching them, he says, Open your spiritual eyes. See what's here. Don't be looking down all the time. Don't be always caught in just the practical issues of life. Look at people spiritually. Open your eyes. He says, can't you see what's going on here? It's a harvest field, for heaven's sakes. Look at them. Look what's going on. Quit thinking, I got, we got to get up to Galilee. <laughs> Look at this and open our eyes Parents know that this is like, what this is like, but so does everyone who becomes a disciple of Jesus. While it's true that there will always be compulsive people who wear us out, if we don't set boundaries, the Holy Spirit will still regularly call on all of us to step out of our comfort zone, to serve someone when we're so tired we feel we have nothing left to give, and to allow him to interrupt our plans and replace them with his. I need to just stop there a second and, 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 and deal what I, with what I just dealt with. I want to make a distinction here. This moment with Jesus is a divine appointment. This is something the Holy Spirit is doing. It is a responsive, hungry person and town. He is going to put aside his agenda and take care of it because this is now what God is doing. That is not the same thing as compulsive people. And when I talk about being interruptible, some of you go, oh man, I, I, and you feel guilty because when people are demanding your time or particular individuals want to talk over and over and over again. There is a kind of person, and there are a lot of us. In fact, all of us would do this, I think, if you let us. 
And that is we want to talk our pain out. It's almost like a verbal vomiting. We want to just talk and talk and tell you how much we hurt and how bad it was and what happened to us. And we do it over and over again. And if we kind of can verbally vomit, we will get a little relief. And so we, if you will let us, we will talk to you over and over and over again, trying to get relief for our pain. We're compulsive. We don't have any sense of, of your needs or, or the situation. We are only aware of our hurt. And so driven by our hurt, we just talk at you, talk at you, talk at you as much as you'll tolerate. If you allow that to be done to you, you will ultimately shut down. You will flee because it will eat you alive. You, we have to put boundaries around that kind of thing. What's the solution? People have to be taught to go to the Lord and find comfort for themselves. That's not a, that's not a cliche. That is not a cliche. Talking to me is not going to heal you. The thing that will heal you is, what is Jesus doing right there? He's fasting and praying. He's, he's just strengthening himself. If you and I don't learn to do that for ourselves, we will, we will always be crippled. That's where we find our comfort. I, I, I remember a, 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 when I, this kind of a sh- shocking uh, experience that just awakened, awakened me one time. I, I, Mary and I had planted a church in another place. And uh, actually, there had been about five families that meet, met in a rec room in, in, in that place. And one of the people that came was, was a man who was an alcoholic. And, and he, he would come. And, and at that point in time, we didn't have a building of any kind. We were, we were in playhouses. We were in, we were in uh, various schools um, and, and all of this. And my home was the church office and the church telephone and all of that. And, and he was talking to me on a Saturday night. And I probably had talked to him for three hours at this point. And it was about 11 o'clock at night, I think, and maybe 10. And... Uh, I said to him, I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to need to go. I got to prepare the, you know, work on the sermon for tomorrow for, the, for church. And uh, his response was, he said, oh, I don't care. He said, I'm not coming anyway. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm looking at him to see if he's going he's gonna to smile, that he's teasing me or something. I, and he wasn't. He was absolutely serious. I said, well, I, I need to be prepared. He said, ah, it doesn't matter. And, I, and it, was, it was one of those, you know, kind of moments. You know? <gasps> and I thought to myself, why? You don't care. And I, I was just, a, it was a wake-up call to me. He was so aware of his own pain, his own need. He didn't care what happened to the rest of the congregation. He just wanted to vomit. And we'd been, I mean, I, like I said, I'd been probably three hours with him or something like that at that point. And this was after many times. I was in one of those cycles. So I just want you to make a distinction in your mind. When we're talking about interruptible, we're talking about lead of the spirit, not simply becoming vulnerable to compulsive talkers who have chosen to come to you rather than learn to walk with God. Now, I know there's people who are early in the stages. They need to be coached. They need to be taught. There is a place for this. But just talking will not heal us. John has recorded for us an example of Jesus doing exactly this. But he doesn't leave us to merely watch Jesus and admire his selflessness. He also recorded Jesus' explanation in which he told his disciples why he was able to do what he did. Remember, John himself was standing there watching and listening to all of this. 
Who knows, maybe he was the one trying to hand Jesus something to eat. Between the time when the woman left and the crowd arrived, Jesus did two very important things. He prepared himself spiritually to minister to those who were coming, but he also took time to train his disciples so they could someday do what he was doing. That's why he explains all of this, so they and we can do what he's doing. And now, thanks to John, it's as if you and I can stand there beside Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Nathaniel, and be trained along with them. Jesus described what he saw in the Spirit because he wanted them and us to learn to see the same things and become interruptible. How else can a person who's been born of God let the wind of the Spirit lead them wherever he wishes? This is the kind of people we're to be, led by the Spirit, following, aware of what God is doing. As Spirit-empowered believers, we all have two sets of eyes. We have our natural eyes, which observe the natural world around us. But God has also given us spiritual eyes to observe the spiritual world around us. And that spiritual world is as real as the natural world. Actually, it's more real and will last a lot longer. The problem at Jacob's well was that the disciples were only looking at the situation with their natural eyes. All they saw was a problem. An interruption. They saw Jesus' hunger and weariness. They saw a troubled woman. They saw Samaritans who were different from them and even hostile toward them much of the time. They saw their plan interrupted. They were finally on their way back to Galilee to see their families who they hadn't seen in almost a year. Do you realize that? I think it's a personal part of this. They've been for, what, eight or nine months South, they're all Galileans. They're, and they're married. I mean, we know Peter is, a bunch of them are. They're married, they got families, they've been gone this long, they want to get home. And he wants to stop in Samaria, of all places. You know, come on, the Samaritans. That's what they saw, this is what he saw. An opportunity to rescue people. Which, though it was unexpected, God had arranged. Jesus saw the spiritual hunger. In the Samaritan woman who had accidentally met him by the will and the faith that had begun rising inside her. Jesus saw the will of God. He recognized the father wanted him to stop and minister there until every person who was ready to hear had been reached. He saw the readiness of the people. He knew they were like a ripe harvest field. He saw the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit, which was always available to strengthen him when he was weak. In order to minister whenever the Spirit leads, I must be able to count on the Spirit to strengthen and inspire me in that moment. Did you hear this? This is, this is critical to this. I'm going to say it again. In order to minister whenever the Spirit leads, I must be able to count on the Spirit to strengthen and inspire me in that moment. When I'm tired or scared, when I feel like I have nothing to give anyone, I must know for sure that God will be there for me. That if I take the first step, He will show up and provide what I lack. The problem is, this kind of faith only comes after I experience his faithfulness enough times 
to realize that God's help in that situation was not a fluke. It's a pattern. And to learn that I have to step out in obedience first, to learn that I have to step out in obedience first and often enough or I will never grow in that faith. When the call comes from the hospital at 2 o'clock in the morning, Pastor, we're here in the emergency room. I'm so sorry to bother you. Uh, I, I don't want, we, don't, we don't want you to come to the hospital, but would you just pray with us right now? My, my son's in a coma. Where are you? We're at such and such a hospital. All right, I, I, I'll pray with you right now, but I'm coming. Get in the car, get dressed. Hopefully the shirt's on straight, on, you know, the right direction. I can't see straight. I'm exhausted. I can't think. Um, I'm awake, awakened from a dead sleep. And I'm now on my way to the hospital. My, my job is to stay between that line and that line <laughs> on the right side. <laughs> and to remember, where, where is that hospital again? And, and, I mean, driving along to get there, pull in. Do you know what you, of course you, you do, you know what this is. You know what it is to feel like just rubber. You've got no spirituality. Nothing's going through your head. You don't have anything to give anyone. And there's a boy in a coma in there. And, and you're supposed to pray and see God's power. How does that work? You look inside, you say, God, nothing. God, absolutely nothing. In that moment, if I cannot count, if you cannot count on God showing up, we're toast. I will tell you this, and many of you know this, time after time, the fact that you simply show up in faith and say, Jesus, help. Jesus, help. What do I do in the car on the way to the hospital? I'll, I'll tell you what I do. Jesus, come ahead of us. We bind the spirit of death right now. In the name of Jesus. I'm just doing that all the way down, trying to, trying to get myself... I'm doing what he's doing. I'm doing what he's doing. I'm getting myself close to the Lord, sensitized, awakening my spirit as best I can. I walk in, you know, where is he? And then you, and then you pray. And you know what happens time after time? God shows up. God comes and his power and presence is there and the fear starts dissipating and people begin to be, be, become restful and there's a direction and a focus that comes into that room. Do you follow this? Yeah. That, if, if, if you and I do not learn to cross that bridge of fear, that bridge of self-inadequacy, if you and I don't realize it's not us, but that if I will respond to what he's asking me to do, he will come. And the only way you learn it is by doing it. And so if you're stuck on that side of the bridge where you won't do it because you're scared or inadequate, you'll never learn. You have got to simply put the foot out and cross it. And what you'll find is he's there. And let me tell you something. I've talked about all the fear and all the difficult side of it. When God shows up and uses you, there isn't a sweeter thing in the world. It's those moments that come to you and you go, this is what I was born for. This is why I'm alive, man. 
when, and you, and it's, you know the, the God of heaven is working through you and you see it. It's the sweetest thing on earth. There's a bridge though. There's a bridge. Busyness, weariness, inadequacies, fears, sense of I can't do this. And if we stay on that side of the bridge, we will not see the power come. And frankly, this, the other side of the bridge is what so many of us are looking for. We want to be used. We want purpose. What are we here for? Why are we alive? I'm telling you, in Christ, He will use you as much as He will use any human on planet Earth. That's why Jesus was teaching this. He wants, uh, remember what He said? Greater works will you do when I go to the Father. Spirit's going to get poured out. I'm the head. You're the body. Here we go. That was his plan, that we now carry that same grace all over into situation after situation. That we're like leaven that he scatters into the lump. That's what he's looking for from us. Amen? Amen. This is why Jesus could do what he did when he was as weak as he was. It's, his, it's what he meant when he said, I have food you do not know about. He knew that wherever God guides, God provides. So if God were, was asking him to do this, then the strength would come when he needed it. Paul knew this same truth. He said it this way. Would you read this with me? He has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Did you hear what the man said? He said, I would, he says, I, I rejoice in my weaknesses because the more, weak, the weaker I am, the greater God's glory shows when things happen. We often think that we look around and we look at people who are talented or gifted, you know, and we think, oh, wow, you, you've got all the goods and there's just little old me. I'm going to tell you, people with the goods often don't do much. And I don't know why that is. It's a bizarre phenomenon. They often just sit and look in the mirror and go, I got all the goods. I don't know what they do. <laughs> they do. It's the talented ones. It's like, whatever. And it's, these, it's, it's the people who don't think much of themselves. Just, but there's a dogged determination. I want to serve Jesus. And you'll watch those who wouldn't in the, in the, in the, in the, in the world's eyes you know, have the education or the talent or, the, or even the health. And, but, they're, but they're determined. And they get this. And they cross that bridge. And he shows up. And as time goes on, God does enormous works. Haven't you noticed how bizarre the religious leaders are? Including myself. There's just something you look like, huh? And yet, God uses the available person. It's not, it's, your, it's not your ability. It really isn't. This isn't a cliche. It isn't you anyway. It's your availability. It's your faithfulness. It's your willingness to get in the spirit and trust him and let him show up. That's what creates great ministry. Will we be interruptible? Will we see situations with our spiritual eyes, not only our natural eyes? Will we recognize divine appointments when they come? 
Will we look past our preconceived attitudes about people and places and let God show us the harvest that he's prepared? And when those unplanned moments arrive at the most inconvenient and awkward times, will we look past how we feel and trust God to do great things through us? Would you stand with me? Blessed be the Lord. So when he says, this year has got surprises in it, I didn't think it was just for me. There's a sense that there's surprises this year. But they'll be good. Are you and I willing to walk that kind of walk? Letting him surprise us, letting him awaken us, be in situations where he says, see that situation? I want you to go speak a word there. I want you to pray for that person. I want you to, I want you to do this. Are, are we willing to be interruptible? But Lord, you know my time schedule. I'm due someplace in 20 minutes. Yes, but she's ready now. I mean, this, this, this gets awkward. He was interruptible. He would follow. And if you and I will, God is in the... See, we don't ripen the harvest. God ripens the harvest. He's the one preparing people, not us. And there are people around us who are looking for God. They're hungry for him. They're ready for him. And they're ready for him now. Will I? Will you? Will we be available to him? Because if we will, this is a fabulous year. There's a lot of work to be done this year. Let me say one more thing. I know there's difficulties. You know there's difficulties. In times like these, you do one of two things. You either run into the mess or you run away from it. And if you and I run away from it, if we become hermits and hide, we become depressed and want to pull in, we will, we, it's destructive. If we will say, Jesus, I'm rolling up my sleeve, they may get me, but I'm taking as many with me as I can. There's, there literally is almost a selfless, here we go. I'm going into the mess and I'm going to reach as many for you as I can. That's life. These, can, these are wonderful years. People are, are ripe spiritually. People are getting alarmed. My neighbor pulled me in the other day. <laughs> I went to just do something at the door, you know, talk to him. And he, he says, come in, come in, come in. You know, I, I don't want to come in. You know, I, got, I didn't. I, I had people at home. I, I, come in, come in, come in. You know, sit down, sit down. <laughs> you know. And then he says, now you know the Bible. He says, what's going on in the world? <laughs> Got to go. Sorry, no time. <laughs> what do I do? Am I interruptible? I had people waiting. All right, let's talk. His oldest son sat there. College grad. I, I mean, I'm just finishing his place basketball. Sat there just leaning forward, listening to every word I had to say. Interruptible. Interruptible. Great year ahead. People are scared. People are worried. Hallelujah. Because they're ready for an answer. And we have it. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We are so grateful that you show us your son. As we watch our Lord Jesus. As he is our discipler. He's our rabbi. He's our teacher. We stand there with those others. Lord Jesus, you you are showing us how you want us to live in our world. Thank you so much. Thank you for your absolute
promise to us that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you will be with us always, even to the end of the age. And so, Lord, we embrace the year ahead. We embrace it with its surprises. We embrace it with its divine appointments. We embrace what's ahead of us and just say, Lord, as you guide us, see our hearts. We are interruptible. We will follow you. We will open our spiritual eyes, not just our natural eyes. And we will see what you are doing, not just what the world is doing. Blessed be God, who will give us a fruitful and an abundant year. We receive that by faith. If you are in agreement with me, would you say amen? Amen. Now may the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.